Welcome to Media at Risk, a podcast from the Center for Media at Risk at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. In today's episode, Annenberg doctoral student Florence Madanga interviews scholar, activist, and media producer Chenjerai Kumanyika. Their conversation touches on the ethics of media production and research on and by people of color, and the challenges and opportunities for addressing forms of oppression in the contemporary political moment. I hope you enjoy. Hi, my name is Florence Madenga. I'm a PhD student at the Annenberg School for Communication. In this episode, I sat down with Chenjerai Kumanyika, who is a journalist, activist, and assistant professor at Rutgers University Department of Journalism and Media Studies. And I teach, you know, a variety of topics at the intersection of social justice and popular culture. A lot, a lot of my stuff focuses on race, journalism, and race and music industries, and then how race is happening in media making and social movements, all those kinds of things. He is also the co-executive producer and co-host for the Peabody Award-winning podcast in Civil. I spoke to Chenjerai about navigating through his various roles, being a scholar of color in the Trump era, and tackling deep-seated issues like white supremacy, the Civil War, and black philanthropy. So you're at the intersection of a lot of things. And what are the advantages and sort of like drawbacks of being in that space? So let me make sure I understand your question. So you're Mm -hmm. asking me what are the drawbacks of working in these different fields or at the intersection of these fields? Yeah, especially because the expectations of working in certain fields sort of contradict others. Yes. So there are things like, you know... Working in academia is very different from That's working right. in media, yes. which is also very different from working in activism. Right. And sometimes some people have views that you can't be both, that you can't be journalist and activist. That's right. So I'm just wondering how you maneuver those things. Right. I think there's two things I would point out, um, two sort of areas of tension. One is what counts as, as certain kinds of knowledge. Journalists generally don't have too much of a problem dealing with academic knowledge other than, you know, Many scholars are hard, like we're horrible talkers. <laughs> we don't know how to tell. We don't know how to really, you know. I mean, we we traffic in like a whole lot of nuance, which is good. Mm-hmm. But then we nuance things to the point where we're not, you know. Sometimes it's it's unintelligible to people. But I think that in the reverse, it's interesting. I mean, right now what you're seeing is all kinds of knowledge production being made possible. Some things were already possible before, but they just kind of take on a new feeling in mm-hmm. the context of new media. And the academy now is really thinking about how can we account for different kinds of knowledge production? You know, what do we make of a podcast? What do we make of someone who's like extremely prolific on social media to the point where they're really influencing things in that regard? I mean, certainly, you know, someone's social media or even a podcast is not the same as a book. Mm -hmm. It's not the same as a peer-reviewed journal article and that kind of research. I feel really strongly that we shouldn't try to equate those things. But I also think that there's room for different kinds of knowledge production. And I think that is a challenge for scholars who are trying to do both research that that engages with like political organizing and, and grassroots organizing and 
scholars who are working in, in like some, doing like something like what I'm doing, where you're in podcast and mm-hmm. those forms of narrative journalism. I think we, at this point where we're at now is you just kind of have to do it all. And I think, you know, and then I think there's all the slow work of illustrating the rigor. You know, I mean, we make, we make Uncivil, it's like it's so much research goes into it. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're traveling. We got interviews that nobody got. We have to transcribe those interviews. We got to like put those into a narrative. We're really thinking about the structure, which means you have to think about how history happens. Mm-hmm. You feel me? But then you got to make a case to people that that's rigorous knowledge. So that's yes. a good little bit, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So some of the things you're doing are on these amazing podcasts. So a Thank lot you. of them are uh, on the topic of race and systematic issues, right? Yes. Um, so in civil is around, you know, history, the Confederacy and its legacy. I'm Jack Hitt. And I'm Chinjirai Kumanyika. This is Uncivil. And then you were sort of involved in seeing white as okay. well. Okay. I don't know what that means about trying to salvage the idea of like good whiteness. Right. You know, when was right. whiteness good? So, you know, these issues are, yeah, they're definitely really, really deep and, you know, difficult to deal with. Um, and journalism usually doesn't, even school systems, usually don't really deal with those issues well. Right. Uh, which is why we end up with a lot of problems we do. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are sort of like, how, how are you yourself thinking about getting around these issues, like in journalism and as a, an educator? How are you getting around those sort of shortfalls that these spaces usually have? Well, I can say, you know, the community of journalists that I, that I work with really are passionate about trying to understand systems and trying to use narrative journalism, which whether it's a podcast or a written essay, to really, in a way, just kind of reclaim storytelling to tell stories about power. I recently did a, a talk at, um, for a conference called Third Coast, mm-hmm. which is a great conference of storytellers and people who make radio and podcasts. And you know, I did it with Sanja Dirks. It's called All Stories Are About Power. That every story has political elements, you know, is saying something about the structure, saying something about the culture. And of course, you know, the power of stories is that they can have individual compelling narratives. So I mm-hmm. think that when we want to understand things like race, we want to understand things like the criminal justice system, you know, we can use individual stories to do that. The problem is that individual stories can also be very depoliticizing. Mm-hmm. And so there's a dominant mode that has to do with the history of social thought and how that intersects with industry and a lot of other things, particularly in, I would say, the West. Our dominant mode of understanding everything is more psychological than sociological. Mm-hmm. Everything comes down to the individual. So what that means for understanding something like race or misogyny is that people under, people just are like, Am I a misogynist? Do I hate women? No, I don't. Okay, no problem. Like, there's no patriarchy. There's no There's no ability to capture, like, a larger structure. It's just like, am I racist? No. You know, like, the bar for being a racist is, like, you literally have to have a hood on, which turns out a lot of people do, right? Like, all these, <laughs> the entire government, apparently, of Virginia had, has had hoods on. <laughs> But I think that, you know, really patriarchy is a much broader system than just Mm -hmm. the attitudes. And I think that, you know, so the trick is to tell stories and use someone's personal experience in a way that illustrates that, right? You know, I think a a wealth of those stories came out in the Me Too era. One of the things I thought that was so profound about those stories was just hearing women's accounts of like, if you're 
someone who's an intern in an mm. entertainment company and a man harasses you or assaults you in certain ways just the matrix of decisions that that person has to make about their livelihood yeah. about what they're going to do that's structural right that has to do with economic conditions right that has to do with job security that tells us that if if people are insecure and are working and don't have you know like con guaranteed contracts they're going to be vulnerable to that because they're going to put mm -hmm. up with more just because they don't want to get fired or they want to deal with it right mm -hmm. so it's that's structural that's not just about what's in like a man's head although there's horrible things in men's heads that have to be erased right it's not to let men off the hook mm -hmm. so it's not about letting individuals off the hook those stories that came out in me too i think have shown people some of the things that are wrong with the structure and i think that that's the power of what of what storytelling can do so that's what we tried to do with both uncivil and seeing white in different ways. With seeing white really trying to shift the conversation about race to something that is structural and systematic mm -hmm. and historical, rather than just like thinking of racism as a disease. Yeah. I mean, you still to this day will hear people use that kind of metaphor. They're like, you know, people have the disease of racism. Racism like is a disease. You know, mm -hmm. it's like racism is not like a disease. I don't think it's not like <laughs> a thing. You know, you know. Because when you think of it that way, it's like some people got it, most of us don't. Mm -hmm. Let's fix the people who got it and we're all good. It's like, nah, that's just not how it goes. Yeah. <laughs>
Absolutely. You know, one one issue that a lot of journalists of color are dealing with mm-hmm. is being in institutions that are not, you know, they're predominantly white. And, you know, I want to be clear. I mean, the journalists I've worked with who are the white journalists that I've had a chance to work with at NPR and uh, Gimlet and many other places Mm -hmm. are really committed to trying to uh, do better, essentially. And I would say Gimlet, there was a real understanding we made on civil. I mean, they were receptive. I mean, I was executive, co-executive producer, mm-hmm. and they were really receptive to some of the things that we tried wanted to do. One of the things we did was I was like, listen, I'm not going to be the only black person in the room mm-hmm. who has to like be a proxy for every just like how the black the, the something false called the black audience as though there's just one perspective, mm-hmm. you know, in, amongst the, the 42 million black people in the United yeah. States. Uh, <laughs> it's like so. I was like, I'm not going to take that pressure. You know, some of that was we hired diversely and also we created even like a consultant group of people who are journalists and people who are scholars who we could send certain aspects of our episodes on and get a take on it. Mm -hmm. And that really, that reduced some of the stress on me because I could at least feel like, you know, there was more. The dynamic changes when you have those voices present. Um, It doesn't, that's not the deep structural solution that we ultimately need, Mm -hmm. but um, and I don't know that the deep structural solution we need is going to come out of a for-profit media organization, period. Yeah. No, it's good you, you brought that up because, I mean, you've been an advocate of sort of like diversity, voice-wise, as storytellers sort of in the newsroom and particularly right. in radio right. and even podcasts. What do you think it would take mm-hmm. for the kind of like equity and diversity of voices? So yeah, what what do you think it would take to get there? Well, I mean, I think you need the right mix of media institutions. Mm-hmm. Right now, almost all our primary news institutions, at least you know all the cable news and big media networks, are all totally for-profit entertainment entities, um, and that's a change that we've seen happen, and I've seen happen in my lifetime. A similar thing is kind of starting to happen even in podcasting. All those things, I think, are not great for diversity in terms of voices. But what I want to get at is, I think we should think critically about some of the language about voices. I think that essentially there's a long history of the influence of advertising, monopoly, and capital and corporate processes in media in general. If you see the influence of advertising on media, which you start to see is it really does start to affect the content, it starts to affect the autonomy, Mm -hmm. and there's lots of research on this. In a way, there's like a certain oppressive influence that economic forces have on media. Now, there's a way where some media are very savvy to just say, well, our way, our solution to that is just to diversify that yeah. oppressive influence. We have to think about diversity in terms of ownership, but also we have to think about diversity in terms of analysis, right? Like, are we getting the voice of radical traditions and analyses in. It's been interesting to watch mainstream news organizations react to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What they have been successful with thus far, and they're just kind of getting started, goes against the sort of centrist mainstream wisdom that you saw coming out of the news, often from, from even hosts of color. So it's totally possible for a woman host to be arguing something that's in favor of patriarchy, for a host of yeah. color to be arguing something that's still in, in, in support of a colonial kind of mentality with reference to Puerto Rico. So that's, that's, that's a problem I'm currently struggling with, is how do I articulate the need 
for diverse voices without restricting it to just voices. The goal is not to diversify a colonial hierarchy. There's a lot of violence that's been done under the language of objectivity mm -hmm. in the past, where and, and you know it leads in some cases to that kinds of both sides ism, where you just are covering sides of an issue and perspectives that are absurd, have no real research behind them. But I think in what is being called the Trump era, and I, I, I'm very clear to say what's being called the Trump era, mm -hmm. because most of the things that are problematic about Trump did not start with Trump. I've really, in that, in this time, I've really come to value objectivity and in the sense of saying, there's such a thing as facts. We can figure out, like when we say, you know, that there's disproportionate police killing of certain groups of people, that's a fact. You know, that's not like made up. And so I think our goal is, is to have better facts. It's not about saying that there's not an objective reality. People have different lived experiences, yeah. but there's a truth. And I think in this era, it's really point to hold on to it because because we are in a moment right now with Trump where people will just ch choose their own facts, you know, and choose their own reality almost. That That's not what we want. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
you know, in my analysis. What I think the American mythology does is cause us to feel like to get liberation, we got to go back to something that yeah. was great. We got to go back to the founding fathers. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about undoing that. And a lot of it is just facts. You know, even the Constitution, right? Like, you know, one of the areas I've been studying, I've been spending more time with constitutional uh, scholars in terms, I mean, in terms of reading them mm -hmm. and seeing the way in which some of the problems we have go right into the Constitution, you know, like a, an institution like the Senate, mm -hmm. right? What the founding fathers literally wrote. They created a Senate where you can have, you know, a state like Wyoming with a tiny population have equal, equal voting power in the Senate to California. And those larger states are all places where people of color are, right, and women. So, so you have a Senate which, by you know, by its nature, the way it's designed and written into the Constitution is discriminatory in a way, right? Because it mm -hmm. has veto veto power yeah. over other decisions. So I think it's really about knowing that it's okay for us to let go of what once existed and to essentially say that to get justice, we have to become something we've never been. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. We can still find our identity and purpose. We can still find solidarity. We can fi even find joy and hope that way. We don't have to cling to this, this mythology. I'm assuming a lot of your students um, <laughs> interact <laughs> uh, with the work you're doing outside of class, like sort of educating the public, I'm wondering what kind of conversations these interactions bring up, because you are working in an institution right. where a lot of the ideas you're talking about are sort of feared, the sort of overhaul of like the system we have right now. So I'm wondering, do you talk about these things in class, or is it sort of separate? And what are some of the things that are coming up uh, that you think are interesting? I, it's like I have two sets of students. I have the mm -hmm. students who actually physically take my classes at the universities that I, that I work for. Mm -hmm. And then I have students who are sort of like the millions of people who listen to Seeing White and Uncivil. And yeah. um, in a way, there's more conversation about the specific podcasts among them. I often use Uncivil and Seeing White in the classroom and other podcasts to try to give students examples. Sometimes it's to address an issue like, talk about what does whiteness mean, why whiteness mm -hmm. is not skin color, to talk about what the lost cause narrative is and what it has to do with race. But mostly what I'm trying to do is show students in my classrooms, like this is these are things you could do. Mm -hmm. Like here's a little example of how we use storytelling, use technology, and then you all have much more ability to do this. You know, let's create some assignments and some cool things where you can engage. So but as far as the questions about the actual content, more of those come from emails. You talked about people not changing their mind very often. But I get to see the people who do change their mind, people who are thinking differently. And I get an email and they'll say, oh, I listened to this and it really changed how I thought about this, asking me about a particular detail, historical detail. And so it really, I think, gives you like a sort of hopeful vision of humanity. Probably also because podcasts are very self-selected. There's people, I, you know, we have trolls and stuff like that, but mostly somebody who wants to, like, hate on you is not going to listen to, like, six hours of your podcast <laughs> just so they can hate. They're just going to yeah. hate anyway. They're just going to tweet. They ain't going to listen to six hours first. Let me make sure I'm tweeting accurately. No, they don't care about that. <laughs> so on, on that note, we talked a little bit about having diversity in the newsroom and just have, being there, yeah. um, which, is, which would be a great thing. But also, you know, there, I do have this concern around sort of the burden of educating the nation mm -hmm. about white supremacy or history or white privilege that often falls 
on people of color and even like the responsibility of systematic change. So I'm thinking specifically about a passage I read in Sophia Noble's book, mm-hmm. Algorithms of Oppression, where yes. she talks about this onus of change in mm-hmm. digital spaces, where sort of, you know, algorithms that are biased um, and like so changing that is placed on black people. So things like oh, they should play a meaningful role in the production of this or that, or they should learn how to code. So the responsibility then is, you know, you fix this and you be there. Um, And that alone supposedly should, you know, shift the tide of hiring and Silicon Valley and sort of the things that are going on there that are problematic. So, yeah, I'm wondering, too, how you're thinking about this tension, just how to express it. Yeah. I would divide your question into two different things. One mm-hmm. is like just the educational burden yeah. that you wind up living with as you know a person of color or a woman. For me, once again, we need certain conditions. So I, I'm, I become aware of that and I try to really lovingly let people know when like it's not time for me to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, ha- I have reporters who would just call me like, will you educate me on this issue? And I'm just mm-hmm. like, yo, you know, I, like... I want to help, but I'm not, you know, like you, you know, somebody who's actually getting paid. People were making movies, films, just mm-hmm. like free consultancy on race. So there's that aspect. And then there's the issue, then there's the issue of like ultimately changing these systems, right? And I think mm-hmm. that unfortunately, the burden does wind up falling on oppressed people to change systems, not because it should, but just because, you know, those who are living through it are the ones who typically and historically have come together to resist that oppression. I think that when we do it collectively and when we do it in an organized way, we can distribute the, we can distribute that work mm-hmm. and we can actually make it a site of community building and something that recharges us mm-hmm. as a kind of collective self-care. I mean, and I think that that's, that's why ultimately we want to try to find ways to institutionalize and collectivize those moments. For me, especially in this body of a black male, I've definitely learned that you have to just, once my tone goes up and people feel any level of anger, you know, I could be mm-hmm. talking about something that legitimately you should be angry about, like mm-hmm. like a 12-year-old child being killed by the police or poverty or whatever. But if I seem the least bit angry, it's like people stop listening. They shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've learned to try to moderate, really kind of calm myself and appear measured. And I think that that's, I spent a lot of time being angry about having to do that, but mm-hmm. I think that what took what just got beyond the anger is I just wanted to be an effective communicator. And can you expand a little bit on this just professionally? Like what what are some lessons and techniques for storytellers or educators or media practitioners, I guess like me, who want to learn how to do the work you're doing? I'm thinking even specifically about, you know, things like dispelling national myths at a time where things like, oh, just fact-checking doesn't seem to be enough. You know, one technique I saw Michelle Alexander employ that has re- always stuck with me is when she began giving her first talk and I, about the new Jim Crow, and I believe the book mm-hmm. is structured this way, too. She started out by saying, here's, what I, here's how I was thinking about this issue, you know, I don't know, six years ago, you know, People who commit crimes, you know, I mean, it's it's maybe they're not truly treated fairly, but if you don't if you don't commit a crime, you don't have their problem. It's mm-hmm. not. She didn't really see crime as a social justice issue and and mass incarceration. And then, so when she stated all those assumptions like that, it was clear she was echoing what a lot of people in the room believed at that moment. 
but that's where she started the speech. And then she just like slowly walked like to where she is now at, you know, at the end of having written the new Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And because she just sort of like <laughs> walked with people, I think it was really, really persuasive. That means you have to recognize and understand what people's assumptions are. And that means that there even has to be a certain kind of kindness and patience with that. What are some things that you're working on now that address sort of the challenges we've been talking about? My main project right now is is a book. Um, I'm writing on stories about black philanthropy, Mm. and it's a critical book. I want to find a way to worry about black philanthropy without hating on the people who are doing these efforts. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's great that people like uh, Jay-Z or Beyonce or Rihanna or somebody are are quote-unquote giving back. Mm -hmm. But I want to think critically about what giving back really means especially if you're making money <laughs> by giving back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, I want to think about the narrative of social mobility because we're at a time when I think a lot of people are understanding that it takes social protest and struggle to change systems, right? You know, you go back to the roots of a particular strand of philanthropy, which is Carnegie and the Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. I mean, they explicitly were giving back to prevent people from critiquing their corporate practices. Yeah. So the question is, if you put a black face on that, does that <laughs> does that change it? Mm-hmm. You know, does that does that intensify the ability to do that? It's probably going to be a little controversial because <laughs> we like we like those stories, right? We like to hear yes. you know, oh, Jay Z built this charter school, you know, you know, but it's like, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, really looking forward to what you do with that <laughs> um, <laughs> and the Twitter rage. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, but... yeah, I'm, right, yeah, I'm, I probably have to go off Twitter or something. <laughs> But no, I want to have the conversation, though, so, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. receptive to, you know. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was produced by Florence Madanga and edited by me, Aaron Shapiro. We'd like to thank Emily Plowman, Joanna Berkner, and Waldo Aguirre. Barbie Zelizer directs the Center for Media at Risk. Our next episode will be the first in a multi-part series on the media cultures of the military prison at Guantanamo Bay. Be sure to check it out. To find out more, visit our website at www.ascmediarisk.org.